Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue our sermon series, Waiting for Messiah, exploring the hymns of Advent and Christmas. In three days, we'll commemorate the 81st anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. What if instead we commemorate the coming of the Prince of Peace? Join us for the message, Hail to the Lord's Anointed. And, worship, uh, and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. You know, in three days, we are going to celebrate or commemorate, I should say, the 81st anniversary of the attack on Pearl, Ar- Pearl Harbor. But what if instead we commemorated the coming of the Prince of Peace? So, <laughs> so stay tuned as for our message later on Hail to the Lord's Anointed. Our scripture today comes from Luke 4, verses 14 through 21. Listen now for the word of God. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread throughout all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When he rolled up the scroll, scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It was a cold and lazy Sunday afternoon at the White House. Earlier that day, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt had hosted a luncheon. And the President, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was finally eating lunch himself in his private study with his close friend and aide, Harry Hopkins. They were enjoying a tray of sandwiches at 1.47 p.m. when FDR received a phone call from Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox. Naval Base Pearl Harbor, home of the United States Pacific Fleet, was under attack from the Empire of Japan. At first, fearing that the phone line might be compromised, Secretary Knox was vague about what he was trying to say. So in exasperation, FDR implored him to just tell him plainly what was happening. When the president realized that Pearl Harbor was under a full-scale attack, he simply responded, no. The attack had begun approximately 50 minutes earlier when a wave of Japanese planes flew over the harbor. And within the first minutes, the USS Arizona, Oklahoma, and Utah had been hit. A second wave of planes would come later The entire attack lasted approximately two hours, and by the end, 2,403 Americans would be dead, almost half from the USS Arizona alone. Well, back at the White House, FDR and his staff went into action. Returning to her own office, Eleanor Roosevelt passed her husband's study and learned what had happened. When later asked how the president responded to the initial crisis, Eleanor told historian Doris Kearns Goodwin, he was completely calm. 
His reaction to any event was always to be calm. It was, if it was something that was bad, he just became almost like an iceberg, and there was never the slightest emotion that was allowed to show. She would later remark that there was one, only one other time that she had seen that particular look on her husband's face, and that was the day that he was told that he had polio and would never walk again. An interesting aside, sometime that afternoon, FDR went to his private physician to seek relief from the sinus problems that plagued him his entire life. And his doctor gave him what was then the standard treatment of the day for clogged sinuses, taking a long cotton swab and coating the inside of the sinuses with cocaine. I don't know if that really made the clogged sinuses better or just mean that you no longer cared. <laughs> well, the president knew that he had to make some sort of statement to the American people. So he called for a joint meeting of Congress for the following day. In the meeting, he would ask the assembled legislature, legislators to declare war on the empire of Japan. Well, FDR felt the speech needed to appeal to the American people's state of mind, which at the time was just a cauldron of anger and fear and confusion. But others vigorously argued that any declaration of war had to carefully lay out the history of the diplomacy between the United States and Japan and list specific reasons that such a declaration of war was justified. In fact, the State Department by that time had already written a draft that was 17 pages long. FDR said he would think about it, but he never really doubted that a shorter speech that spoke from the heart was what was really needed the next day. So that afternoon, FDR called his personal secretary, Grace Tully, into his office. He took a long drag from a cigarette and began to dictate one of the most famous political speeches in all of history. It would be less than three pages and would only take six and a half minutes to deliver. The president began his dictation with this sentence. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date that will live in world history, the United States of America was simultaneously and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Grace Tully typed out that first draft, and then the president got to work making changes by hand. And in that first sentence, he changed the word simultaneously to suddenly. But more importantly, he replaced the words world history with a single word that came to define both that speech and that day, infamy. So that now it read, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date that will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. He went on in the speech to offer a brief review of the diplomatic negotiations that had taken place between the two countries. He then outlined the additional surprise attacks that all around the areas of the Pacific that this Japan had engaged in in the last 24 hours. And without elaboration, he declared that he thought the facts spoke for themselves. And he expressed confidence in the American people and in their armed forces, saying, no matter how long it takes us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. He ends not by asking Congress to declare war on Japan, but rather by asking Congress to declare that a state of war has already existed 
since the first moment of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Well, Congress discussed the Declaration for a whole half hour before voting. The Declaration passed the Senate 82 to 0 and the House by 388 to 1. The lone no vote was cast by Montana Congresswoman Jeanette Rankin, who had also voted against the United States' entry into World War I. She declared, as a woman, I can't go to war, and I refuse to send someone else. Well, just as the president requested, the declaration itself stated, therefore be it resolved that the state of war between the United States and the imperial government of Japan, which has thus been thrust upon the United States, is hereby formally declared. In his request for a declaration of war, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave one of the most famous political speeches in history that in just a relatively few words laid out a course of action that would change world history. And in his opening words, in the Nazareth synagogue in which he was raised, Jesus gave one of his most famous teachings. And gospel writer Luke records these as Jesus' first public words. And in these words, not unlike in FDR's words, Jesus laid out a course of action that would change world history. We sometimes don't like to talk about politics and religion. And we don't have to look very far in our own society to find plenty of examples of a mixing of politics and religion that have led to both bad politics and bad religion. But whether we like it or not, Christianity is inherently political. The person around whom we have built an entire religion was arrested, was arrested and executed by the state for the crime of sedition. And there's a reason that the Romans put a sign over Jesus' head saying that he was the king of the Jews because that was his crime. And so therefore that was a political statement. And following the teachings of Jesus will have political repercussions. I mean, think about it. He's talking about releasing the captives and letting the oppressed go free. And that sounds fairly political to me. So political that I like to refer to the Isaiah text that Jesus read in the synagogue that day in Nazareth as the Jesus agenda. Because it's what he came to do. It was his agenda. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Unlike FDR, however, who was asking for a declaration of war, Jesus, as a sense, was making a declaration for peace. Like FDR, Jesus was bringing his declaration into the present tense. FDR claimed that a state of war had already existed between the United States and Japan, and Jesus declared that today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And we are called to fulfill the Jesus agenda in our day. During Advent, we celebrate the coming of the Prince of Peace, I think making it a perfect time of the year to, to declare to the world, to make a declaration of peace to the world. The writer of our hymn for the day, Hail to the Lord's Anointed, is a man named James Montgomery. James Mon uh, Montgomery was a popular poet and hymn writer uh, during the first half of the 19th century. He was the son of the Moravian minister, and he was born in Scotland, but spent most of his adult life in and around Sheffield, England. 
Montgomery would have certainly agreed that the Christian faith had political repercussions. You see, his writing and publishing had gotten him imprisoned twice. Once for a poem in praise of the storming of the Bastille, which was the event that sparked off the French Revolution, and another time for an article that was critical of the governing authorities for the handling of a local riot. He held a variety of day jobs until finally, later in his life, he was able to make a good living just from his writing alone. And in keeping with his Moravian faith, he was deeply interested in social justice and humanitarian causes, writing works critical of the Atlantic slave trade and the treatment of child laborers, particularly boys who were employed as chimney sweepers. Though he published a wide variety of works in his lifetime, he predicted that it would be primarily for his hymns that he would be remembered, and he predicted correctly. Five of his hymns are in our United Methodist hymnal, not only Hail to the Lord's Anointed, but also the Christmas hymn, Angels from the Realms of Glory. Hail to the Lord's Anointed is based on the 72nd Psalm. In its original context, Psalm 72 was used during the coronation of kings. The first four verses of that psalm read, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to a king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains yield prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give delivery to the needy, and crush the oppressor. It goes on to describe the perfect king as one who saves the poor and needy and rescues the people from violence and oppression. The perfect king brings the nation shalom, that is, peace and wholeness and well-being. Later, Christian interpreters saw Psalm 72 as a prophecy about the lordship of Christ. Christ was the perfect king who brought shalom to the people, release to the captives, freedom for the oppressed. And it was in that understanding then that Montgomery wrote his hymn. I mean, consider just the first verse. Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Hail in the time appointed, his reign on earth begun. He comes to break oppression, to set the captive free, to take away transgression and rule in equity. Here Christ is referred to as the Lord's anointed. And the literal meaning of both the word Messiah in Hebrew and the word Christ in Greek is the anointed one. So in the Hebrew scriptures, Hebrews, or, or, excuse me, in Hebrew scriptures, kings and priests and prophets were all said to be anointed. Then that makes Christ then all three, uh, king and priest and prophet. So when in the synagogue of Nazareth, Jesus chooses to read from the scroll of Isaiah, where the captives are released and the oppressed go free, and then claims that the words have been fulfilled in their he hearing, Jesus is making not only a spiritual claim, but he's also making a political claim. He's saying that in God's kingdom, where Christ is king, that the spirit of the Lord is upon him because he has been anointed to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And if we are now the body of Christ, Christ, who claim to be working for the coming of the kingdom of God, and we claim to be looking to Christ as Lord, then we're going to be going about 
doing the same. Because you see, we've already been anointed by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, for us to bring good news to the poor and to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to declare and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So as we go about this season of preparation for the coming of the king, then let us proclaim not a declaration of war, but a declaration of peace, a declaration of justice and righteousness and wholeness and well-being. That is a declaration of shalom. Let us let the Prince of Peace work through us until all the captives are released and all the oppressed go free. Amen. Always remember that you can find uh, recordings of our service on our website, tumcd.org, uh, on our Facebook page, uh, or the audio on our uh, podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. And I also forgot to say at the beginning, if you would like to give a uh, donation or a contribution to the ministry, you can also do that on our website, tumcd.org, or our Church Center app, as well as giving then to our communion rail offering for the Dallas Bethlehem Center. So now, receive this benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. Prepare the way of the Lord. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we'll continue our sermon series, Waiting for Messiah, as we explore the hymns of Advent and Christmas. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church. <music>